This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Climate in the Courtroom here on Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Last week, we met Saul Luciano Yuya. He's a 40-year-old Peruvian mountain guide, farmer and father, living in the stunning Cordillera Blanca mountain range of the Central Andes. It is a hiker's paradise, but with an uncertain, even ominous future. Whenever I go to the mountains, I look at them and I talk to them. And when I see the glaciers melting, I blame climate change. But I tell myself that I am at least doing something about it. And what Saul is doing about it is unprecedented. In 2015, he launched an extraordinary court case against a European energy giant. RWE, Germany's largest electricity company. One man challenging one corporation in a court half a world away. We must defend the mountains and nature since we depend so much on them. The companies are polluting nature. We must defend both. But that takes endurance. Five years on, the case is still underway. And be sure to catch up on last week's podcast or listen on the Science Friction website for Seoul's story and the science behind it. Today, the company Seoul suing RWE gives me a rare interview on the case. But can we really use the courts to attribute the costs of greenhouse gas emissions and global warming to any single fossil fuel company when we all use their products? This case tests that question and the world is watching to see if Seoul will win. Well, if that were the case... Guido Stefan is spokesperson for RWE. You could blame any aircraft passenger or any truck driver or any farmer or any other person in any other corner of this world for his CO2 footprint. And then you could make him pay for your individual problem that you relate to climate change. The difference is that the emissions of that individual airline passenger and the emissions of RWE aren't on the same scale. Professor Hari Ozoski is Dean of Penn State Law, but she's speaking to us in an individual capacity today and is co-author of the book Climate Change Litigation, Regulatory Pathways to Cleaner Energy. The responsibility for the problem of climate change of that individual farmer or that individual person on an airplane is likely to be a a small fraction of that of a major fossil fuel company. And you'll also meet the scientist who's become a real thorn in the side of the fossil fuel industry because he's dredging up their own data from deep in the dusty records of corporate history and using it to hold them to account. We're not trying to pin climate change on one particular company. Rick Heady is founder and director of the Climate Accountability Institute. But every company that produces carbon and provides that to customers around the world, in our WE's case, all of the coal it produced, it used in its own power plants. And so it is not only the producer, but also the emitter. It would send a strong signal to the entire oil, gas and coal industry, even if it's a minor judgment in a small case in Essen, Germany, to hold a company liable for its proportion of contribution to uh, atmospheric change. 
And this is the early days of potential climate litigation. A lot of potential defendants around the world who will want to hold the oil and gas and coal sector to some degree accountable for the damages they have knowingly perpetuated. But so far, RWE refuses to accept the legitimacy of Seoul's lawsuit against them. His claim against our company, according to us, has no legal basis and it does not comply with German civil law. It is judicially impossible to relate specific or individual consequences of climate change to a single emitter. That's what would count according to civil law. You have to kind of attribute individual and in this case historical emissions of one single emitter to a single phenomenon on the other side of the world. And you have to find a direct link, which would maybe mean you would have to have tags on the CO2 molecules saying, I came from a smokestack on the other half of the world. Simply impossible. But a German court is taking this case seriously. The civil lawsuit was initially dismissed in the district court in Essen, but after an appeal in the higher regional court in Ham, it's been granted a go-ahead. So essentially the court concurred with all of the points made by the plaintiff, which was simply that if you exercise behavior that damages other people's rights, and in this case property, you are responsible. This is Seoul's lawyer, Dr. Rhoda Verheyen. It doesn't matter where it is, as long as you can scientifically and legally establish causation. And since we we claim we can, and the court has accepted that it is in principle possible, we're now in the evidence phase. So to my mind, RWE currently doesn't want to hear what the appeal court said, and I can well understand that. But where we are is a major court in Germany said, yes, you can in principle make major emitters responsible. That's where we are. How significant is that in your mind? It's unique in the world. No court has ever said that before. I think it um, it reflects also, frankly, frustration that people have tried to change policies around emissions and getting ready to do something serious about climate change. And then when they look at the world, we've been talking about climate change for three decades and emissions are a third higher than they were in 1990. And, and so it's that frustration in some sense that we're seeing in these cases. Professor David Victor directs the Laboratory on International Law and Regulation and co-directs the Deep Decarbonisation Initiative at the University of California, San Diego. He's the author of Global global warming gridlock. When you look at the cases themselves, I think most of them are going to have real real trouble. They're going to have a hard time identifying cause and effect, you know, culpability, um, which is crucial for, for applying the law. If we're going to get at this problem of climate change, we have to deal with the interconnection of the world. Professor Hari Azoski speaking to my colleague Jane Lee. And so even though they may seem far apart, The climate change problems being faced in rural Peru are being impacted by the emissions of major emitters around the world. But Guido Stefan, the spokesperson for RWE, argues a win in this case could send a dangerous message. I mean, it would mean that at least the owners of an airline, of a truck fleet or of a small or medium-sized manufacturing plant could be blamed for their CO2 emissions. And um, this would be something like the war of everybody against everybody. But for Saul back in Peru, this feels more personal. He's a man on borrowed time. 
Or he might be. That's the thing. He and his community don't know if Lake Polkakocha, the vast glacial lake upstream from their large town of Waras, will burst today or tomorrow or next year or never. But if it does, there's a risk 17 million cubic metres of water will be unleashed on their town. Authorities are doing what they can, but the tide they're trying to hold back is bigger than one lake. It's the tide of global warming, which is causing glaciers to melt and glacial lakes to fill in the Andes. And so Seoul wants the major greenhouse gas emitters of the world to pay for the costs of protection. The 17,000 euros is very little when it comes to dealing with the damage. There are damages that have no actual price. They are irreparable. But this is, first and foremost, a strategy that my lawyer and I have created. It is, let's say, symbolic. Well, he's only seeking 0.5% of the estimated cost of strengthening and repairing the dam that protects his agricultural livelihood. We looked at the percentage share of global emissions that can be linked back to RWE's chimneys. Dr. Rhoda Vahayen, Seoul's lawyer. And we claim that RWE, through burning coal for electricity production, is responsible for 0.47% of overall emissions globally. And this is where geographer Rick Heady's troublemaking enters this story. As an undergraduate student in the 1970s, he read some of the first studies on climate change and then spent nearly 20 years working at the trailblazing Rocky Mountains Institute, famously founded by Amory and Hunter Lovins. He worked on fuel and energy efficiency and other sustainability projects. I realised that none of these initiatives was moving the world fast enough and that somebody had to address the elephant in the room. Rick Heady joins me via Skype from his home in Old Snowmass, Colorado, which is also operations central for his Climate Accountability Institute. And that elephant is the oil and gas and coal industry that would subvert national policy to argue against action on climate change, provide campaign donations against climate legislation and that somebody needs to stand up to them in terms of what their responsibility is with respect to climate change. And that began with a conversation and an ambitious idea. My friend Peter Roderick, who had started Climate Justice Program in, in London, had contacted me and asked me to do a simple study. Barrister Peter Roderick is now at Australia's University of Newcastle. He co-founded the Climate Justice Program in 2003 with, as it happens, Dr Rhoda Vahayan, Seoul's lawyer. But in 2002, the study Peter asked Rick to do was... Detailing the contribution of a single oil and gas company to atmospheric carbon dioxide. Their value in the world is to provide fossil fuels to the consuming public. But nobody had really made an account of the climate impact and the atmospheric impact of a single company over its history. So Rick set about developing a model that does just that. He and colleagues have scoured libraries across the world for dusty old annual reports and company-declared figures on the volume of the commodities that corporations have extracted across time, oil, gas, coal, that they then use to supply energy to their customers. 
us. And then they used these to calculate the associated greenhouse gas emissions for each company, reaching back as far as the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. They're up to 108 companies. We have now, Natasha, documented the source, the corporate source, for 70% of all anthropogenic, human-caused carbon dioxide emissions since the invention of the steam engine and the early development of coal resources. The model has been thoroughly peer-reviewed and robust. We base it primarily on corporate data since we have a reliable database of how much of a their annual production has ended up in the atmosphere. I mean, you've said that the data that you're getting from company reports is robust, but you're still relying on information that corporations make public. And of course, there are still commercial and confidence arrangements and old-fashioned greenwashing and corporate spin. And do you ever doubt the accuracy of this data that you're collecting? Not on the production side, which is the core of our data. You may have heard of incidents in the past where an oil company, for example, will exaggerate its proven recoverable reserves in order to inflate its asset value for shareholders. But with respect to production, I think those are relatively straightforward and clear and reliable. And the findings are confronting. Rick's calculations suggest the top 20 carbon major companies, as he describes them, are responsible for just over a third of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide since 1965. The top 90 companies account for nearly two-thirds of greenhouse gas emissions since the Industrial Revolution. Lawyer Rhoda Verheyen says Rick Heady's database is a game-changer for addressing climate change in the courts. It's crucial because it is the first piece of scientific research that you can actually use to pinpoint private entities' shares of emissions. Because what we have globally is a very detailed inventory of countries in the framework of the framework convention on climate change. But we didn't so far have any kind of framework that did the same for large emitters in the in the corporate world. So it was quite instrumental. All of the cases worldwide that are currently ongoing with defendants in the corporate world use the carbon majors list to some extent. And Rhoda Verheyen is doing the same to challenge Germany's largest electricity company, RWE, on behalf of her Peruvian client, mountain guide, Saul Luciano Yuya. RWE sits at number 37 in Rick's carbon majors list. His calculations suggest they've contributed to just under 0.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions since the Industrial Revolution. So that's the percentage of the costs Seoul wants RWE to pay him to protect his home. Do you accept that analysis of your historical emissions? Well, climate change is a very complex dynamic and definitely a global phenomenon. RWE spokesperson Guido Steffen. And there's many, many factors, anthropogene and also natural factors that relate to climate change and to climate. Many of these factors have not yet been identified or understood perfectly. For that reason, we don't consider it possible to 
find out a special percentage of contribution to a single emittance. That simply is not possible. Isn't it, though, a clear exercise in carbon accounting? Rick Heady, who runs this project, has simply looked at the publicly available data that RWE and other corporations has made available to convert energy production into the equivalent greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide and methane. Yes, they have evaluated publicly accessible figures, also figures that companies like RWE deliver to federal bodies to inform them about the greenhouse gas emissions. The question is, can you find out the correct and definite percentage relating to a history of more than 120 years? Can you find out a precise percentage of our contribution to CO2 emissions. We simply consider that is too complex than to be something that can be accepted. We don't think it is possible. We think this does not work. So you don't accept his analysis of RWE's output? Our, it's our general point of view that it is simply impossible to understand and to track and to trace every atom or every molecule of CO2 in a way that in the end you can say emitter X provided for Y percent of the world's CO2 emissions ever since. What that project, though, does reveal is that RWA has been responsible for at least 7.2 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent of emissions. We do not comment that figure. Climate change is much too complex to um, identify a precise percentage. Well, it's not a matter of responding to my work or these models or, or my results as much as the global need to decarbonize the world economy. Rick Heady from the Carbon Accountability Institute. And of course, the overall objective here is to help companies have rationale and reason for adjusting their business model away from contributing further to climate disaster and to acknowledge that they have an important role to play in transforming the global energy economy to be far less carbon intensive than it is now. And so some of this public pressure, uh, I think, helps make that argument not only to corporate management, but to their investors and lenders and banks and uh, and insurance companies. A lot of companies have recognized that there are huge risks to them of of being Neanderthals on this problem, of blocking everything, uh, reputational risks. We see this especially with the European firms, uh, big oil and gas companies headquartered in Europe have really changed their tune a lot and changed their investment strategies. Professor David Victor, author of Global Warming Gridlock, he's advised corporations and politicians on the transition to a low carbon future. So I think the issue, the problem is not as much that the that the corporate interests are all trying to block progress. The problem is that this is really really hard. We don't really know um, what it costs. We don't know which strategies are are going to work. We have some ideas. Uh, renewable energy, for example, has gotten cheaper, and that's helped uh, a bit. Other things have uh, proved to not not advance as rapidly, and that's where we are right now. Is we've spent a lot of time talking about the problem and not as much time uh, doing, if if you like. RWE is robustly defending Saul's case against them, but they're also reinventing their operations. They say branding themselves as the new RWE by planning an exit from coal and investing heavily in renewables. 
The German government has stipulated that all coal-fired power stations will be phased out by 2038. Utility companies like RWE will be compensated to help make that transition. And 65% of electricity is to come from renewables within a decade in Germany, with all nuclear power plants shutting within two years. RWE has changed the target and is going to be CO2 neutral by 2040. So until then, there will be no net CO2 emissions uh, from RWE, from RWE's power generation anymore. That deadline isn't soon enough for climate activists who have targeted RWE in their protests. But RWE argues the future is more important than the past when it comes to addressing climate change and their greenhouse gas emissions. Let's make a difference between liability, judicially, and responsibility. We believe that we are not to be made liable for the claim the Peruvian farmer, Mr. Luciano Luya, makes. But of course, we are responsible for climate and fighting global climate change. And this is why we contribute to energy transition by directing our company into a renewable future. If we take that argument, though, that RWE can't be responsible for the impacts of a global phenomenon like global warming on one town in distant Peru, how do you reconcile that argument with the Court of Appeals decision in Germany that the case is well-pled and admissible? It's now in the evidentiary phase. You know, the question is not, do we have to accept a claim that Mr. Luciano Luya raises against us because we have undoubtedly have emitted CO2 in the past decades. The question is, what can a big company like RWE do for climate protection? What can United Nations, what can be done on an international level to fight climate change? Of course, a company like RWE can do a lot. And climate change is global and knows no borders. So we can use our professional strength on our field of business, which means we invest in renewable energies. We support uh, German and Europe's energy transition, and we reduce our CO2 footprint at large. And uh, we are stepping out of coal-based power generation. And that's the figures that really count in fighting climate change, delivering millions and millions of tons of CO2 reduction. The future belongs to renewable energies. Already today, RWE is the second biggest operator of offshore wind farms in the world and the third biggest generator of renewable power in Europe. It will mean that we will be a big operator of wind farms, photovoltaics, biomass, of storage facilities. We may also have gas-fired power stations in the portfolio but natural gas as a fuel will be replaced by hydrogen or we will use waste to compensate the remaining CO2 emissions. Will you still operate coal-fired power plants in other parts of Europe where they have not been phased out? Definitely not. Other fossil fuel companies, energy companies, have resisted this transition, continue to resist this transition. What's at the heart of RWE's motivation to strip fossil fuels, or particularly coal, out of its business operation? Basically, it's two reasons. It is politics. 
that requires that uh, the carbon footprint of uh, all industries in Germany and Europe be reduced. And secondly, it's also the customers. They also want to consume and receive environmentally sound power. And of course, this is a trend in society that no producer, no generator can ignore. Um, I've worked with a number of companies in particular on this issue of thinking through how do you, how do you as an oil and gas company uh, transform yourself into a company that's a low carbon company. And in some, some of these companies, very interesting because they want to go into businesses like producing electric power that's not been their core business. They're frankly not that good at it. And I'm very skeptical that they're going to be successful. And then other, other lines of business that they might go into really play to their core strengths. Some of these companies, Equinor, which is the Norwegian state oil company, they're very good at ultra deep water operations. And so they're going to be big players in offshore wind. You've got a, a lot of companies that are experts in putting things down holes into the underground because uh, they, they extract things from holes in the underground. And so that's going to be a core skill for carbon capture and storage, which is a cluster of technologies that make it possible to at least use some fossil fuels and then capture the pollution and put it underground. There's big projects in Australia. You've got these companies that have recognized that they've got to change. They don't know what to do. Uh, they know that if they fail to act, that they are going to suffer catastrophic reputational and investor risks. And so they keep on trying to change. And I think that's the fear that needs to be put into the boardroom at the incumbent companies is that they have to recognize that the existential risks here is not just how do you what carbon tax you pay at the margin and then you keep on doing business as usual. They're existential risks to the firm if they aren't part of the solution. Professor David Victor. Even so, does RWE's reorientation from coal to renewables render the current court action against them redundant? Lawyer Dr. Rhoda Vahayan representing Peruvian man Saul Luciana Yuya. No, it does not, because my case is about past and current emissions. And so far, RWE hasn't made a very long headway to actually um, reduce its emission load. Um, and also, naturally, the way a company can be carbon neutral is by selling off installations. Um, and I'm, I will be, you know, we, we are watching what RWE is doing, obviously. But in general, everything that they do now is not going to affect my case, no. Even if that company has clean practices right now, there's still the problem of the harm that it caused. Leading energy and climate law scholar, Professor Hari Azovsky again. It's wonderful if companies are taking steps to reduce their emissions, to address this problem, to be positive, proactive actors on this. And I think that's something that should be encouraged and celebrated. But that doesn't take away from the fact that they have caused a harm through their actions that they have accountability for. Do fossil fuel companies like RWE and others bear a larger responsibility than other actors in this issue? Because you're an industry that has profited from products that knowingly have caused anthropogenic climate change over many decades now. Do you bear a larger responsibility to address this issue than many other sectors? We have been using coal during the decades past, not arbitrarily, 
but we did so by governmental permission. All aspects of our operations, they have not only been approved by parliamentary and administrative bodies and institutions, our operations doubtlessly have always complied with the law and have obeyed all thresholds for pollution and noise emissions. So what we did was justified. But Rick Heady from the Carbon Accountability Institute argues fossil fuel companies can't dodge the consequences of their past deeds so easily. It's pretty clear that the oil and gas companies have put human harms and human risks in play by not investing decades ago into not only form, informing the world about the risks of climate change, but also doing something about it starting 20, 30, 40 years ago, when these companies themselves knew about the climate harms of fossil fuel development. They made light of climate change in order to continue selling their products to a willing world. Of course, we all demand fossil fuels and, and petrol and everything else. I do myself. But these companies knew decades ago that there would be a problem in their business strategy in continued development of fossil fuels. And instead of, of making that public and having a, a national dialogue about climate change and how to deal with it, they invested in climate denial and obfuscation. And yet, Rick, we have all known for decades now that fossil fuels cause global warming and we haven't stopped purchasing their products or utilising them. So establishing liability is complicated. Absolutely. All consumers, whether they be individual consumers all around the world or large corporations that are the consumers, have some responsibility, some shared responsibility for climate change and addressing the issue. But in my mind, it's the fossil fuel industry that has captured the interest of governments around the world to uh, provide regulatory relief, to open up leasing on in the U.S. federal lands offshore and onshore in order to perpetuate a market for their carbon products. So uh, they bear a larger responsibility than the consumers, in my mind, for directing their attention to how to resolve the problem. Of course, governments and corporations and individuals have their responsibility as well, but it must be led by the oil and gas companies. I agree that uh, it's the consumers who are in control of purchasing and using those products, but the fossil fuel industry has much more power than consumers do. Do you have compassion for the plaintiff situation here? Communities around the world feel powerless in the face of large energy companies like yours, unless perhaps they're shareholders. And so court action is seen as one way to get a company like yours to understand the profound personal consequences of the business that you're in. Yes, also we understand that Mr. Luciano Luya is anxious that his property might get damaged by a spillover from that glacier lake. We understand that. But in this case, we are convinced that Citizens should address their local authorities for urgent aid if that is required. And it is his right to take action uh, at a German court. It is his right. But for climate protection, it is the more effective way to do what we do by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions at large. But given that the risks to his community are a direct consequence of global warming, 
a global phenomenon to which the fossil fuel industry has made a major contribution. Who is to pay for climate mitigation at a local level? Climate protection is a universal task. Everybody has to contribute to it. That refers to consumers, governments, with industries in all countries of the world. RWE spokesperson Guido Stefan. So, does Saul Luciana Yuya and his lawyer, Dr. Rhoda Vohayan, think they have a case of winning this court case against RWE? If I get a lot of luck, there is a possibility, but it is 50-50 chance that I will either win or lose. But apart from this, it will be symbolic. If we won, a lot more people will sue the company. I'm absolutely positive that I will win this case. I have already won on legal terms fully, 100%. And I am absolutely certain that I can answer the questions put forward by the court in the affirmative. My client's house is at risk from a glacial outburst flood, yes. My client's house is at risk because of an increased laguna due to climate change, yes. And RWE's emissions have contributed to this, yes. I think we can win this case more than ever. So I'm very hopeful. I think that the court system, at least in Germany, has a function which is a little bit similar to science because it it needs to objectivize. It needs to actually look at things with an outside view and not a political one and not a policy one and certainly not a power, you know, who is in power, kind of who makes the most money kind of view. So that the courts are actually able to look at the climate problem, especially with regard to the way it infringes human rights in a much more direct way than sometimes parliaments or governments can. And that's why I think climate litigation has multiplied so much around the world. Even if you do win this case, you you will not stop necessarily that lake flooding Seoul's hometown. No, that's a very valid point. And that's why um, the organisation that has been supporting this case has helped Seoul in establishing an NGO on the ground. And that NGO is now liaising with the authorities, with other potential donors um, to actually get this protection project off the ground. Because you are very correct, what is necessary is to actually um, implement the protection measures on the ground. And that's what we're trying to help with as well. I think the significance of this case is that if a court in Germany is willing to find this linkage between Germany and Peru, it really opens up the ability to in similar sorts of facts and areas of jurisdictions create these transnational linkages in the litigation. Harry Azovsky. And I think that's really important because a lot of the most impacted countries are in the global south. A lot of the major emitters are in the global north. Now, there are certainly major developing country emitters as well, but the ability for those who are most impacted to to have a means of redress that links transnationally to those who are most responsible for the problem is a really important step in this litigation. 
But David Victor, author of Global Warming Gridlock, is sceptical that the courtroom is an efficient and effective path to climate change action. If RWE has contributed to less than 0.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions since the Industrial Revolution, he says that's small fry compared to the top emitters, many of which are state-owned energy companies. They're Saudi Aramco, they are uh, Chinese firms, they're Gazprom, a, a giant uh, natural gas producer uh, owned by the Russian government, um, China National Petroleum Corporation, a whole cl- cluster of Chinese uh, firms, NIOC, which is the Iranian national oil company, and the list goes on from there. And that's the challenge, is that there, there's really no legal system inside a country that's going to be able to hold those kinds of firms accountable because those firms are indistinguishable from their governments and therefore this is a matter of foreign policy and not economic policy and applying penalties against powerful governments through the courts is almost always completely impossible and that's the kind of practical difficulty here it's not that i'm opposed to to trying to use the courts and certainly not opposed to holding folks accountable where they're, where they're accountable but i'm very concerned that we've We've keep chasing these shiny objects, these 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 approaches to to trying to solve the climate problem, without really checking to see whether they they give us line of sight to real solutions at scale at the speed needed to protect the climate. To be honest, with this court case, the impact that it could have is nothing in comparison to the continuous melting the ongoing pollution, the steady rise of the temperature. But at least we have made a move towards change, even if it's a tiny one, a tiny bit towards justice, so that companies stop polluting. So this year, the court-appointed experts in Seoul's case were due to travel to Peru to determine if Seoul's house is at genuine risk of flooding from a glacial lake outburst, the extent to which the glacial lake above his town has been affected by climate change, and the extent to which RWE's greenhouse gas emissions have contributed significantly to climate change. A global pandemic has delayed proceedings. Who would have predicted that would happen? Is climate change, in fact, the next pandemic-scale crisis that we need to address? Thanks to translator Alexis Castro-Robles, Climate in the Courtroom is co-produced by myself and Jane Lee. Email us via the Science Friction website. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Next week, the consequences of global warming, a violation of your human rights. Catch you then. Bye.